passage for tonight is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. So I invite you to turn there. The subject tonight is the issue of slaves and masters. The issue of slavery and the biblical revelation concerning it are sensitive subjects to say the least. We're going to consider this sensitive subject tonight, but let me give you the conclusion of the matter before we get too far down the road into the details of this passage. The Bible never explicitly condemns or condones the institution of slavery. I'm going to say that again because that's the most important thing I'll say tonight. The Bible never explicitly condemns or condones the institution of slavery. In several places, the, the Bible recognizes the reality of slavery and mandates certain behavior of the righteous slave owner and the righteous slave. Now, I'm using the word righteous here tonight in the sense of one who is positionally righteous. In other words, they're saved with the expectation that they will act righteously. That's how I'm using it. In, in other words, in the Old Testament sense, because most of this material is taken from the Old Testament, or at least most of this preparatory material. Now, I said a moment ago, just a moment ago, that the Bible does not explicitly either condemn or condone the institution of slavery. There are some biblical references, to be sure, or biblical implications regarding the ethics of one human being owning another human being. But it's different. The, the Bible never explicitly comes out and condemns it, but implicitly, there's a lot of information in there about the ethics of one human being owning another human being, and those implications must be taken seriously. In our own country, we need to face this. In our own country, the institution of slavery was not something about which we should be proud. But it was a reality that must be faced. For example, George Washington owned over 300 slaves. No more than 150 of them were ever working at any one time. The other 150 of his slaves that he owned were either children or, or women or those who were unable to work for some reason, or they, many of them were sick and he was providing them medical care. So only 150 of his 300 ever really were working at any one time. By all historical accounts, including accounts of those who were George Washington's freed slaves, Washington treated his slaves extremely well. And that doesn't surprise me, but because as far as I can tell, George Washington was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, as far as I can tell, by his own letters and by his writings. Washington deeply desired to free his slaves during his lifetime. He writes about this. But he feared that if he, if he set loose 300 slaves on the economy of Virginia at that time, very few of them would actually find meaningful work, meaning that they would, some of them, perhaps even starve. So he kept them on his estate and continued to provide for them throughout the entire course of his life. In fact, it cost him more money to keep the slaves on his estate than it would have had he set them free. He was morally conflicted by the idea of one man owning another. And Washington made provisions for the release of his slaves upon his death. 
Some people criticize Washington for that. Some of his biographers do, saying that he should have had the moral fortitude to free them while he was still alive. But it, sometimes people make pronouncements historically without all the data. And if you go back and look at Washington's reasoning, that was his reasoning. Alexander Hamilton was a strong proponent of abolition of the slave trade, at least of the slave trade, having grown up in the Caribbean where he saw or he witnessed firsthand many of the cruelties of the slave trade. The slave trade itself, getting the slave from Africa over to the United States, was a cruel, utterly cruel activity. And that, that cannot be denied. I mean, and, and anyone who, who would promote slavery, or one human being, only another human being, I doubt they would do that if they had to take that trip over in, in the tight quarters that they were in with the, the shackles that they had on. Many of, many of those slaves died on the way. So Hamilton, growing up in St. Croix and other places down in the Caribbean where these slaves were brought in, he saw that, and so he was, he was for the abolition of the slave trade from the beginning. But he wasn't the only one. In fact, most of the founders were personally against slavery. If you read their writings, they were personally against slavery, and their writings on the subject viewed it as an institution that would not live long into the republic. It's not only unfair, but it reflects poor historical method to condemn the founders for not addressing the issue of slavery more firmly at the time of the War of Independence from England. There were other issues that were more central to them at the time. In my reading of the founders, the vast majority of them believed that the issue of slavery would be addressed in due time once independence was won. It's also a misunderstanding, or perhaps a rewriting of it, to claim that the war between the states was fought with the primary purpose to end slavery. It was fought to end states' rights. Slavery was a secondary issue. I'm not saying it wasn't an issue, and I'm not saying it was an important side issue, but it wasn't the primary issue. It didn't come in until much later. In ancient times, slavery was widespread as an institution, especially among the Greeks, but also among the Romans. It was Among the Greeks, it was a common practice to reduce captives, and often the criminals, and even debtors, to slavery. On the island of Delos, sometimes as many as 10,000 slaves were sold in a day. Delos is, uh, is an island that's only a, a couple hundred miles from Ephesus, where Paul is writing this. So what I'm trying to say is the people that Paul is writing to were, were quite familiar with this institution. Even as Roman citizens, they would have been quite familiar with it as well. Just historically, if, if we just look at it from the historical record, rather, it is understood that the Romans probably treated their slaves with more cruelty than the Greeks did. Most Greek and Roman slaves were not so much the people that went out and worked the fields. Some of them were. But most Greek and Roman slaves were their doctors and their educators, their nannies that would sit with their, their kids. When the Greeks and Romans would, would go conquer another country, they killed most of the men. And then they picked out the professionals and they took them back with them. We can't superimpose some of the things that perhaps happened in American slavery back on the institution of slavery at the time of Paul. There are some similarities, and there will always be people who have treated slaves cruelly, but it wasn't in the slave owner's best interest to, to, to treat the slave cruelly. He wanted that slave to work. 
Now, it must be acknowledged that the Old Testament does not regard the possession of slaves to be always and under all circumstances a moral evil. Please let me repeat that. That's probably the second most important thing I'll say tonight. It must be acknowledged that the Old Testament does not regard the possession of slaves to be always and under all circumstances a moral evil. Israelites were permitted to impose the punishment of slavery upon captives from pagan nations. That's in Genesis 15:16 and Leviticus 25 verses 44 through 46. A burglar who was unable to make restitution according to the law had to be sold into slavery. That's Exodus 22 verses 1 through 3. In other words, God used in the Mosaic Law, or the law of God that was mediated through Moses, to use slavery as a punishment for one who would commit a certain crime. You, you committed a crime, you stole something from someone, and for whatever reason, you, got, you were caught and you weren't able to pay that back. That was part of the Mosaic Law. You paid them back what you stole, but you couldn't do that. Then you became that person's slave. That's Mosaic Law. It's different, I hope you can already see, it's different from going to another country and kidnapping people and bringing them back and selling them in the slave market. We're talking about something that's different. But even though these were punitive things, punitive things for the pagan nations that were brought into slavery into Israel, or a burglar, for example, who couldn't make restitution, those stipulations are a far cry from divine and indiscriminate permission for anyone to kidnap another human being and make them their possession for profit. It's not what the Bible commands. In fact, Exodus 21.16 says this, Whoever steals a man, whether he sells him or is found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Now that's where you see modern commentators on the Old Testament that would say, well, that's, that means, and I happen to agree with this, that if someone kidnaps someone, someone kidnaps a child, whether they sell them or whether they don't sell them, that person's caught, biblically, capital punishment is, is the penalty. And as a parent, I say amen to that. One of, the, I, one of the absolute worst things that I can imagine as a parent is to have a child kidnapped and never see that child again. I mean, that's a heinous, heinous crime. But there's not a lot of difference between kidnapping a child in a shopping mall or going over to Africa and kidnapping someone's child out in the bush and bringing it. So, so God is saying, whoever does that shall be put to death. So here's some people, the reason I have to bring these up, some people say, well, the Bible condones slavery, therefore the Bible's condoning an evil, therefore the Bible's an evil book, therefore the, Bible, the author of the book must be evil, therefore God must be evil. No, we just need to read it, and we need to read it carefully, but keeping all things in their proper context. Exodus 21, 16, again, whoever steals a man, whether he sells him or is found in a possession of him, shall be put to death. In, in the more recent centuries, some have tried the opposite approach. They've tried to say slavery is okay. There's nothing morally wrong about slavery because God condones it. Well, if they say that Moses condones slavery, they really don't, they don't have a biblical leg to stand on. Hence my statement in the beginning that the Bible never explicitly either condones or condemns slavery. It's the cruelty of slavery 
cruelty in slavery that the Old Testament strongly condemns. A man who has purchased a female slave with the intention of making her an inferior wife is not permitted to treat her as a slave anymore. Exodus 21, 7 through 11. Extreme cruelty to a slave must result in the immediate freeing of that slave. Exodus 21, 26 and 27. Part of that passage indicates that that if if a slave owner in an act of cruelty should punch that slave and say knock the tooth out of the slave's mouth or breaks an arm, then that slave owner had to free that slave. Are you, are you starting to get the point now? You see, God recognizes this institution, but if you're, there, there are very strict parameters for how one individual treats another individual. Returning a runaway, runaway slave to his master to become enslaved once more is strictly forbidden. So if someone runs away, you free that person, you take that person back to their original slave owner to turn them back in, you can't do that under the Mosaic Law. Deuteronomy 23:15. Among the among the Israelites, a poor person or a person who is in great debt could sell himself in order to pay his debt. But the condition was not really that of slavery. It certainly didn't correspond to later Greek and Roman slavery, because this person could get out of that institution after a certain period of time after that debt was paid then the person would be set free. That's Leviticus 25.39. Now, there's a basic rule regarding the slavery in Israel, and it's this. It's mentioned in Leviticus 25.42 and 43, and I quote it. They are my servants whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves, neither shall you rule over him with harshness. You shall revere God. So the idea, here's, here's the seed passage to to our passage tonight. So let me read it one more time. They are my servants whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves, neither shall you rule over him with harshness. You shall revere God. For the Hebrews, slave or indentured servant, probably more accurate word, the seventh year was that of emancipation. So you wonder how long did a person have to work to pay off those debts? Seven years. If the year of Jubilee arrived in the meantime, then they were freed immediately. So they had a seven-year period, but if the year of Jubilee, which, by the way, the Jews didn't celebrate as they should, which is one of the reasons for captivity. But, but if the, theoretically, if the year of Jubilee arrived a, a year after they went into indentured slavery, then you had to let them go after the first year. When a Hebrew slave had served his term, shall we say, put in his time, he must not be sent away penniless. So the slave owner couldn't send that slave away a beggar or a pauper. On the contrary, when you let him go away from you into freedom, you must not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally with provisions from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your wine press. As Jehovah your God has blessed you, you must give it to him. You shall remember that you yourself were once a slave in the land of Egypt, and Jehovah, your God, redeemed you. That is the reason why I give you this command today. Deuteronomy 15, verses 13 through 15. It's bothered some that once we got to the New Testament times, it's bothered some that neither Jesus nor the apostles advocated social revolution or immediate emancipation of every slave. 
but to do so would have caused a sudden upheaval in the entire Roman economy and have, would have resulted in misery for many, many people, not to mention the slaves that had been dependent upon their master for a living, a la George Washington's idea many, many centuries later. But it also, if there was mass chaos and anarchy in the Roman Empire, it wouldn't have been a very good environment for the propagation of the Christian gospel. So it has bothered some that Jesus never came out and said, free all the slaves. But he kind of did. He's just a different kind of slave than he was. He was more conservative. He was more concerned with slavery than freedom. You see, Jesus had a primary mission, and he was focused in upon his mission. And, and by any omission, he wasn't being sinful, obviously. But he was more concerned with whether a person was a, whether they were slave or free. He was concerned with the status of their soul and their eternal destiny. Paul teaches, not only in his letter to Philemon, but also in Colossians and in our passage tonight in Ephesians, is that love coming from both sides both the slave and the master, is the only solution to this teaching, this problem. Now, with that summary in mind, let's look at the passage tonight in Ephesians chapter 5, or chapter 6, rather, beginning in verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as unto Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as unto the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Then in verse 9, the responsibility to the masters. And masters, do the same thing to them, and, giving up threat and give up threatening, knowing both that both their master and yours is in heaven. There's no partiality with him. God, God is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't think more of you because you're a master or less of you because you're a slave. He is no respecter of persons. Even though slavery is not an issue in our culture today, we can still make an application from this passage. And let me tell you that before we get into the details as well. Because there's an obvious secondary issue here. In, in hermeneutics, we talk about meaning, a, a sphere of meaning, and then a sphere of significance. The sphere of meaning is very, very tight. This passage is talking about, in its context, slaves and masters. But when we broaden that out into a modern-day applicational situation, it is certainly within the realm of the sphere of significance in that hermeneutical idea, the idea of interpretation. So understand this could also be applied, these truths could also be applied to the employer-employee relationship, even though we wouldn't call them uh, slaves. Now, remember that we're in the portion of the epistle where the believer is being exhorted to live a life characterized by wise decisions, by understanding what the will of the Lord is under the enabling ministry of the Holy Spirit. Wise living is not going to happen apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And among the results, not the only result, but among, among one of the four results that's mentioned of the, of the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit is mutual submission 
And that is to mission within the particular context in which we find ourselves at any given moment. Now, tonight's passage is going to speak of the slave, and let's just say it's a, a male slave with a family. It's going to speak of this slave submitting themselves to the master as unto the Lord, to do their job as unto the Lord, even though they're a slave. But let's just say that slave then goes home, wherever home is, into the hut or whatever, and that slave has a family in the home. Within the context of that family in the home, the slave who has just submitted themselves to the master now actually is, has a leadership role in that different context. And the wife is to submit to the husband in that context. And when she's out on the plantation or right on the farm or whatever it may have been in that time, I'm using modern terminology, she would have to submit to the, to the master. But within the context of that immediate family unit, there were other areas of submission. And even those children were, would submit to the parents in the immediate context of that family. So when the Bible talks about mutual submission, it's not talking about across the board, I submit to you, you submit to me in every circumstance. It would be nonsense. It would be not worthwhile putting any ink on that at all. Mutual submission is submission within the particular context in which we find ourselves at any given moment. Now, Paul goes on to mention three such contexts. Wives to husbands, and by implication, husbands to the Lord. Children to parents. We studied that last time, and by implication, parents to the Lord, and slaves to masters, and by implication, masters to the Lord. Most slaves, one, one last point of introduction, most slaves in Paul's day served in the home. So this illustration fits well within, this, within the context of this idea of mutual submission because the context that Paul takes are generally household contexts. Now, verse 5, slaves be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. Now, these are masters according to the flesh. This is not your heavenly master. Now, the idea, again, is just like in the wives to husbands, it's Jesus Christ that's telling the righteous slave, the one who has trusted Christ and is expected to act like it, it's Jesus Christ who's saying, you be obedient to that person over there. So Paul begins, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. They're not your masters. Ultimately, Jesus is your master ultimately. But according to the flesh, you're to be obedient. So Paul contrasts masters according to the flesh with masters uh, with regard to the spirit. Jesus Christ being the master according to the spirit. Seven qualifications are going to describe this Proper obedience. First, the service was to be respectful. You know, again, we, we have this in different contexts today, but and I know many of you are employers or in a position of leadership in your company. You know, if, if um, and I know people do this, but people have done it to me in, in other contexts. But you know, you you tell them something that's really important for them to do, and then they, they turn around and start mumbling. What was that? You just said. In fact, my brother, when he was at Home Depot, like uh, Tom was in charge of all the doors and installation, uh, doors and window rack, window sales and installation. He liked to drop in on his uh, store from time to time without anybody knowing he arrived. He was in his car at one time, walked up to the counter where they were supposed to be selling the doors, <laughs> and the guy was on the phone. And the guy didn't acknowledge Tom Lane, so Tom just stood there and waited, 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 waited. 
And finally, the guy got off the phone after five minutes of it. And when the guy got off the phone, Tom, who still hadn't identified himself, but says, you're prosperous, keep going. And Chuck says, wait, are you making this a habit? And the guy says, oh, no, not at all. And then he acts like he was soothing instead of controlling on his phone. I said, what did you just say? He still doesn't know who Tom is at this point. What did you just say? He said, oh, nothing, sir. I hope you have a nice day. Huck, too. And then he said the profanity to me. It wasn't Huck, too, but something to that effect. Kind of summed it up. Hey, right here. Then he got the manager of that particular Home Depot location, showed him who he was, got the police officer, and they escorted that fellow out of the building immediately. You see, that's not, that's, that's not respect for, for whatever you, you know as an employee. That's not what you're supposed to do, no matter who the person is in front of you. So the first thing that a slave was supposed to be was respectful. And not to be, you, you can be obedient with respect, or you can be obedient apart from respect. And all of us know how that works. The, these slaves, uh, Christian slaves, were supposed to be obedient out of respect. But there also was to be some, some trembling. The, the text tells us, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart. The trembling is most likely intensity of obedience so that you don't make a mistake. In other words, not sloppy obedience. Sloppy obedience does, does, rarely does any good. In other words, do your job well. If you're a craftsman, do it well. If you're an accountant, do it well, as whatever their workload they were setting. Third, it was to be sincere without hypocrisy or duplicity. In the sincerity of your heart, as unto Christ. So the fourth, the service should be as unto the Lord. And that literally means is because the Lord told you to do it, you're going to do it as if you were doing it for him. Can you see how this certainly applies to employers and employees in a, in a broader context as well? Fifth, the service was supposed to be consistent whether the master was watching or not. Not by way, verse 6, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So these slaves weren't supposed to just work hard while the boss was watching. They were supposed to do the job, whatever that job was, because the Lord had told them to do it. Are you, are you starting to see now there's a certain ethical requirement of the slave in that relationship because there's more at stake than just the task that's being done. Christ is being represented. So it was to be consistent whether the master was watching or not. He might have had in mind doing your work well that the master couldn't even check on you. If you've, if you've been an employee, you know there's work like that. You know, somebody could mess you around, could want to do that. Because no employer has, has the, uh, the time to go back and check every little detail of someone's work. You have to be able to trust them to do the right work. But it also needed to arise from proper motive. Not to please men only, but to please God. That's why that's what he means by it. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So finally, seventh, the slave should have an, have an attitude of goodwill toward his or her master. He should serve for the master's welfare. And he should not have to be threatened with punishment in order to do it. Now, I got to tell you, if 
this kind of admonition on the on the part of the Apostle Paul bothered a lot of people. I was in more than one seminary class where certain certain groups would, would bring this up and, and want to discount the entirety of the New Testament because look look at what's happening here. Paul is Paul is saying that these slaves should have bowed down to the master and just done whatever the master wanted. You're missing the point. They're missing the point entirely. Entirely. And it's too bad because the slaves are evil. The point really, when you get down to the bottom of it, is you do everything that you do as unto the Lord, no matter what your status is in life. And, and that application could be broadened out even more. There, when it comes to the Bible, there really isn't that much of a distinction between what we might call the sacred areas of life and the secular areas of life. Human beings draw those distinctions because we see, we see people who are, for example, in ministry in a very public position. And we, we see people bringing them water or, or making sure that they've got everything that they need. So that's a very important role. Well, it is in, that sen- in the sense that, that that task is feeding a whole lot of people. But before God, the person who made sure the chairs were aligned properly, made sure the temperature was right in the room, made sure the parking lot was swept clear of any extra water, as long as that person is doing that job as unto the Lord, whether anybody ever sees it or not, Look at with me again. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers. Whether anybody ever sees what you do, and I'm, now I'm using a church context, or not, it ought to be done as unto the Lord because the Lord sees everything that's done. But even, even with something as, as basic as Christian giving, remember the Pharisees, how they would give, they would have these big, huge brass bowls and they would, take, they would take a group of coins in their pocket, usually large coins. They would take those coins, and they would toss them from a distance into the bowl, and it would make all kind of noise, clang, 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 clang. So everybody knew that they had given a lot of money. So everybody knew that they didn't just put a little bit in, but they gave a lot. Well, they were being men pleasers. They were, they were more interested in what other people thought than what God thought. And the reason I can say that is because that's what Jesus' testimony was. Then you had that little widow that just had, it's called the widow's mite, just the smallest of possible coinage. And she goes up there very privately, almost in embarrassed shame in front of Jesus. Jesus said her gift was more than those others who gave because she was doing it as unto the Lord, whether anybody ever knew it or not. That's why some of these folks, even in our own town, who have the reputation of being a lot of charity, but I know people that work for them or have worked for them, they won't do any of that charity until the TV cameras are on. And that's charity. If it's real charity, just do it. Because God knows it's real charity. So the bottom line to this admonition, or this, this first part of the admonition, is whatever we do, we need to do it as unto the Lord. I haven't even heard that one yet. That's, that's about the only place that we, whether it's, and I don't mean to be, I'm not being in any way serious, whether it's making the coffee before church, or emptying the trash, or, or, or setting chairs up, or duplicating tapes, or whatever it may be, as long as it is done unto the Lord, whether anybody sees it or not, 
with it in a joyful way, not under compulsion, respectfully, wanting to do it right without hypocrisy or duplicity, as unto the Lord, consistently, then it's going to please God. That's the real point of it. And I think all of us can appreciate that. The way our culture is, that especially when you walk by the newsstand and, and the best-selling magazines of, of people and the magazines like that, or you just look like Andy Warhol, 15 minutes fame, everybody wants that public recognition. And if you're waiting for that, you may be waiting a long time. Not because anybody needs to, but because sometimes things just get overlooked. But if here's a way to test yourself. If you're doing something at your home, you know, because you love your family, at your church, even at your work, and you didn't get praised for it, and therefore you never do it again, you, you might have done it for the wrong motivation. You might. I don't know. You only, you only know your heart. So we need to be careful with that. Look at verse 8. Knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. If the Lord watches your work, you're going to receive a reward. And this passage is probably a reference to the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. There will be a day when you'll be paid back for washing the dishes happily. Not just to earn points with your wife, but because you love this and because you love the Lord. Or, or cutting the grass and making sure you're doing an absolutely wonderful, good job, not so that the homeowners association is not unscathed, but because people know you're a Christian there and you want to do it as unto the Lord. I hope that makes sense. The reward will come of the judgment seat of Christ and not of man. Now, finally, in verse 9, we have the responsibility of the master. And you've seen this in all three of these relationships. First, we have the responsibility of the wife and then of the husband, and then of the children and then of the parents, and then finally the slave and of the master. And masters do the same things to them. Give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Now that indicates that the, the masters that Paul is speaking to are Christian masters, which makes sense because he wouldn't be writing a letter to non-Christian masters. They wouldn't care about it. So both the slaves and the masters in this context are believers. Give up threatening them. In other words, this is, a, I think, a word symbol or a picture for the entirety of the, of the concept of treating those who work for you well. Treat them well. Treat them like human beings. Treat them, this is kind of a radical concept, treat them as you would like to be treated. Now, come out of what's that? Is it silver rule, platinum rule? Golden rule, isn't it? Yeah. That's, that's all he's saying here. He's repeating the teachings of Christ in verse 9. Do the same things to them. That's how you would want to be treated. You treat them that way. So if you are involved, this is in the ancient context, in the institution of slavery, in, in the guidelines that were there, then you treat that person as a human being for whom Christ also died, who also was created in the image of God, just like you were. Now, that same thing, that same truth pervades all the way from verse 22 of chapter 5 to chapter 6, verse 9. Those who are in leadership have a responsibility to treat those that are being led in love and in kindness and with respect 
Now, that doesn't mean that you have to let them run all over you because that's not leadership. But there has to be love and kindness and respect. And if you're in leadership, you should look at that person and say, well, how would I want to be treated if I was in that situation? And again, this doesn't mean, because this question came up, well, does that mean I need to let my wife just have anything that she wants? Well, of course, if you want to have a piece of pie. Well, no, of course not. No, of course not. That's not true. That's not true. Sometimes it's the loving thing to do to say no. It's the loving thing to do to say no in the military sometimes. You've got to do things for the good of the, of the mission. And a, and a good soldier is going to understand that and is going to obey. The, the whole idea here is that those in leadership have the greater responsibility. And so Paul makes sure that they understand that. Masters do the same thing for them. Give up threatening or treating them harshly, knowing both their master and yours is in heaven watching there's no partiality with him. In other words, he doesn't think more of you because you're the master than because they're the slave. And so ends this portion of the epistle. Remember that the epistle of the Ephes- to the Ephesians is divided up into two sections, chapters 1 through 3 and chapters 4 through 6. Chapters 1 through 3 outline the incredible blessings that God has given to each and every believer. Chapters 4 through 6 tell us, in essence, that we should live consistently in the knowledge that we know those blessings are ours. And the key idea in chapters chapter 4, verse 1, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, the underlying concept is always still Christ. But we saw that we were to walk in unity in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. We were to walk in holiness in chapter 4, verses 17. 32, we were to walk in love or live a lifestyle characterized by love, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. We were to live a lifestyle characterized by light, chapter 5, verses 7 through 14. And we were to live a lifestyle characterized by wisdom, chapter 5, verse 15, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9. Now, we've spent more time on that last one than any of the other sections, but I think that it is time well spent. Now, that ends the formal application section of the letter to the Ephesians. But the letter to the Ephesians has not finished. In fact, it's going to finish with a rousing climax in verses 10 through 24 of chapter 6, where Paul changes the subject ever so slightly, but significantly at the same time, from walking in unity, holiness, love, light, and wisdom, to the idea that, it's not going to always be an easy walk. There will be opposition to this walk. And that will be the subject of chapter 6, verses 10 and following, as Paul concludes the letter. Heavenly Father, we thank you dearly. We thank you so much that, that you love us and that you're watching us consistently that there's no partiality with you, that we don't have to feel inferior in life because of our position one way or another, and we we have no right to feel superior no matter what position we occupy in this life. So we thank you, and we ask for help by means of the ministry of the Holy Spirit as has been portrayed in this section on living in wisdom. We ask for help from the Holy Spirit and to to be able to handle properly these interpersonal relationships that so often cause spiritual shipwreck within Christian families, within Christian marriages and friendships, and even in Christian businesses. 
So we ask for help, and we look forward with anticipation to the conclusion of this epistle, where we see that even the opposition that comes from our arch enemy has been taken care of if we will just simply keep our focus and our attention upon him. Thank you for all this in Jesus' name.